You're listening to another New Hope Chapel podcast. This message is from our series called Apocalypse Now, presented by Steve Coleman, elder and member of New Hope Chapel's teaching team. Now, if you haven't heard any of those texts before, uh, we'll be putting them in context this morning. Uh, The backdrop uh, are scenes from a a number of disaster films, and uh, even though it's Hollywooded up, uh, Revelation itself packs a punch and uh, and really reads like a Hollywood blockbuster. Uh, we This is the third in a series on interpreting biblical prophecy. Not an easy thing to do. There's lots of prophecy sprinkled throughout the, the Bible, Old Testament and New, and we've uh, covered, surveyed some of that in the last two sessions. T- today we're going to work on the book of Revelation and take a look at that. Um, it is um, uh, so we've we've um, we've taught, used the metaphor of kind of a puzzle to talk about prophecy because we don't have using that metaphor all the pieces that we need to understand prophecy. We have some pieces. It's very hard to use prophecy to really uh, get a lock on future events. We know this because we look at the prophecies in the Old Testament that talked about Christ coming the first time, and it did not paint a complete picture. But it was more than sufficient to provide confirmation of Christ and who he was and his ministry when he came. And I think the same trend carries over with end times. I think we have enough to understand uh, the big picture of what God's doing and, and where uh, and to confirm things, to identify things when we're there, but certainly there's not enough in there to say, well, we better gear up for December 21st, 2012, or any other day, because we just don't know. All right, well, let's get into the book of Revelation. Book of Revelation. It's not Revelations. No, it's the book of Revelation. This isn't a book of a set of revelations that John had. Ooh, Eureka! I just, something, the light bulb came on. No, this is the book um, of the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place from the beginning of Revelation. So it is the book that God uses to reveal Jesus Christ in his second coming, in his coming in power and glory, how things all wrap up. We talked about the beginning of Genesis, we have creation of heaven and earth. We talked about in Revelation 21, the end of the Bible, we have creation of a new heaven and new earth. So that's the scope of the Bible, and that's where the storyline of the Bible takes place. Now, I I like charts. I was going to try to provide you a chart. I've provided charts the last two weeks. But the problem with Revelation charts is we could be here three hours trying to work our way through that and explain it. So it's not that much of a help in understanding and getting an overview of the book. Uh, besides, they um, uh, they try to pin things down so specifically. I start to have troubles with saying that's not really, I'm not buying that as, the way it is going to happen. This one incorporates some kind of a uh, stars. And, and, of course, they have dates along here. And according to this, here we are. 
most of the way through the sealed judgments. But I have included kind of an overview uh, in the handout that you have. Uh, the, the first page has some of the principles that we've talked about, plus there are two blanks on there. And those are two questions we're going to be answering today uh, coming out of the book of Revelation. Now, there is this chart on the bottom of the first page. And this chart's a very helpful one, I think. It's published by uh, John Walvrood, who's associated with Dallas Seminary, is an excellent theologian. And this one in particular sort of breaks down Revelation and talks about the scene or the, um, you know, as if this was a play, what the perspective is of the scene. John's approach in Revelation is to sort of bounce back and forth between what he's seeing going on in heaven and what he's seeing going on on earth. And that can be very helpful for understanding what it is you're reading and, and help you with interpretation. You know, they, um, there's a ride at Universal Studios called Disaster. And you, you ride this ride and you get partway through. And then all of a sudden, an earthquake seems to happen. Uh, the street above you uh, collapses. A truck slides at you. And 65,000 gallons of water start to flood the area that you're in. And it, for those who ride, it's designed to uh, really shake you up. Now, there's a whole different perspective on that ride. If you talk to designers and engineers and even the operators and maintenance people of that ride, and and they could show you the wonders of that ride in how they make all that happen for this group, and then it all sets back up and it happens again for the next group. And where that 65,000 gallons of water comes from and how they make it look like it's going to flood you out and then how it gets uh, recycled again. And that's what happens here. There's, there are some things that are talked about from Earth's perspective where, wow, this happens. And then there are other things where the scene is definitely heaven, and we sort of see behind the scenes what the marvels are, what's happening in heaven that then ends up impacting the Earth. So that chart's there for, for your use in the future on that. Uh, okay, well, let's, the, the second page... Uh, has uh, the beginnings, ha- second, third pages have an overview of Revelation. And uh, I just want to, I'm glad I put a lot down on paper for you so we don't have to spend as much time sort of working through and talking about this. But this is a very, very brief overview. Uh, there, there are so many details not here and left out. But this gives you a flavor for it. Uh, I, I thought it was important because the book of Revelation reads like it's somewhat chronological. And since the Old Testament prophecies and the prophecies in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, other than Revelation, don't have that chronological feel. And we know that, as I said before, the the prophecies in the Old Testament about Christ's first coming didn't have a chronological feel to them and ended up not being chronological. That's what I meant to say. Uh, That uh, I'm have a serious question about whether we can sit and read through a book of Revelation that appears chronological and have the reality end up being that. I think it's very possible that the interpretations uh, and the way it plays out may, may look different. And what I mean by that is we can look at Revelation and say, oh, we can 
foresee this is how it's going to happen. I think we're going to be surprised at how it happens. But I think the things in Revelation, just like the Old Testament prophecies about Christ, are more than sufficient for the people at the time to understand, recognize, and validate what God's doing. Uh, so we see first in chapter uh, chapter 4, the chapter numbers are down the left-hand column. And in chapter 4, I start off with a scene in heaven, 4 and 5, that John sees. A great, a great time of worship in there. You should read it. It's interesting. Uh, but he sees this scroll. And nobody in heaven is found worthy to open the scroll. This scroll has seven seals on it. And it ends up being, and John is told, because John actually starts crying, because, weeping because nobody is found worthy to open this scroll. And one of the uh, people there says to him, don't weep, the lion of the tribe of Judah is worthy to open the scroll. And then John sees, and the way he describes it is, he saw a lamb as though it had been slain. Now, there's a terrific picture there of Christ if we connect that up sort of theologically with him being the lamb of God to take away the sins of the world and his death. So uh, John saw that. Um, it's hard to know whether to take that as some kind of physical thing that we're going to see uh, at that time or if it's purely symbolic. But the point is the lamb can open this scroll. Now here's one idea of a scroll with seven seals. Uh, another idea, which has an intriguing angle to it, is that the seals are somehow placed so that you break a seal, then you can open the scroll partially. Then you break another seal and you open it a little further and another seal, and so on. I mean, uh, that picture looks a little silly with it that way, but at least it's trying to get across that idea. Who knows exactly what this scroll looks like? Who knows what these seals look like? But the seals end up being judgments. And you can take a look at those in chapter 6 and run down there. And you will notice in these, this list of seals, as you read them, take a look at them, and there are a number of parallels between these seals and the things that we read in the Olivet Discourse when Christ was answering the question that the disciples asked him, what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So maybe these two are the same things that Christ talked about. Chapter 7, you have this interesting perspective where there's 144,000 from Israel that are sealed by God. And then this huge group that can't be numbered from all nations that are sealed by God. A real evidence. I have it highlighted because we're going to talk about highlighted bits in a minute, but it's a real evidence of God's interest in the great theme that begins all the way back in Genesis of his effort to rescue his people and defeat sin, which came into the world and brought with it uh, a spiritual deadness, we died spiritually, brought physical death, and it brought a, a, a number of corruptions in. Well, that's what Revelation is focused on, is the completion of eliminating those, uh, that, those effects. Uh, chapters 10 and 11, 12. And, okay, you have the seals. And out of the seventh seal, which is in chapter 8, uh, there's silence in heaven for half an hour. I don't have time to 
talk to you about that, but there's some interesting things that we could say. But the uh, but what comes out of the seventh seal are the seven trumpets. So you get this um, sort of uh, you know one thing moving to the next thing, and the down in chapters 15 and 16, we have, no, that's the wrong one, down in chapter 8 and 9, we have the seven trumpets. So they come out of the seventh seal, have the seven seven trumpets. And there's an interesting statement at the end of uh, chapter 9 that the people refuse to turn to God. Uh, the the uh, fifth, sixth, and seventh trumpets are called the three woes. The only reason I can, th- part of the reason I, I think for that is because you get this uh, additional intensity. Things, um, things go really from bad to worse. Uh, you have these, the abyss is opened, and for five months, locusts. And he says locusts, but then when he goes on to describe them, they're really these bizarre, uh, mutated kinds of creatures that have the power to sting like a scorpion, and they sting all those who aren't sealed by God for five months. The second woe, and you have angels release horses and riders that kill one-third of humankind with smoke, fire, and sulfur. I didn't mention back with the seals, uh, the fourth seal, the rider on the pale horse, brings death for one quarter of the world's population. So when in this trumpet, when they, when one third of the earth is, uh, people on the earth are killed, you don't have two thirds of the population left anymore because you lost one quarter already. So all you have is three quarters when you go in with the trumpets. So if you lose one third of that, now you're down to half the population of the world ends up dying as a result of the seals and then the trumpets. Chapters 10 and 11 begin this hiatus, 10, 11, 12, uh, and 13, sort of, um, it's almost like an interruption and there's a series of stories and people that are talked about somewhat out of uh, outside of the chronology and and who knows how it fits a curious story about two witnesses that show up one of the things that makes it curious john has a lot of really amazing vi- visions that um uh, challenge the mind he's talking about these beasts and what they look like and that sort of thing. This story about the two witnesses is the kind of story, reading the details of it, that it's possible you could see a way that it could happen, literally, the way it talks about. I don't have time to go over that story at all, but look at this this effort God's making, again, to bring and proclaim the gospel to those on the earth. Interesting. There are uh, some times mentioned in chapters 10 and 11. 42 months, 1260 days. Uh, in chapter 12, time, times, and half a time is mentioned, and another 1260 days. I put a chart on the bottom of page 3 that talk about some of the 
specific time periods mentioned in prophetic literature, and, and really this relates to Revelation and Daniel because they're the two, those are the two spots where you find these things, and there's some interesting sort of cross-pollination with these that um, might be important to help in interpreting them. So in uh, chapter tw- we chapter twelve has some of those times mentioned. Chapter f- four, thirteen is one a lot of people know and like in Revelation because it it talks about this antichrist that's to come and it has the famous uh, prophecy and information about the mark of the beast that that we need to have. Now I have not yet found a qualified scholar that can assure me that the mark of the beast really is something like a raven's jersey one is wearing. But I'm, you know, I'm still looking. There may be one out there that can, that can uh, represent that. <laughs> so you may be safe. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, the mark of the beast. Now, at, then comes chapter 14. And this has some incredible information to it. You find an angel flying in midair over all the nations proclaiming the gospel. Man, what an efficient way to do it. We've been sending missionaries out and having to raise up money and put them on boats and they have to live outside of their own land. But what, again, here's God with a very direct, clear, and efficient delivery system to the world his gospel. And not only that, there's two more angels that follow. And one that uh, proclaims judgment of the world system, which of course is the system, the, the Antichrist's one world system. He has a one world government. Uh, and then a, a third angel that warns about the beast and accepting the beast's mark. So people are hearing Again and again. What are the implications of that? It must be that if people were to change their mind, accept an offer, that there, there's something significant would happen with that. We're not told of people at these incidents ever turning to God, but the implication is something would happen if they did. All right, moving on to the next chapter, we kick into the bowls. The way the seventh trumpet talks, and sort of the hiatus between that and then this uh, chapter here, you sort of get the same impression that out of the seventh trumpet come these seventh bowls. So this judgment that comes, it's coming uh, more dramatically. It's coming with greater ferocity. And uh, I, I know more than one theologian has said, you know, it, it probably comes with greater rapidity. There's this amplification. And you can look at what happens with the bowls. Horrible, horrible things. On an interesting side note, if you remember to Israel being in Egypt and the plagues that God brought that got them out of Egypt, uh, they had... Uh, uh, they had boils, the Egyptians did, as one of the plagues. They had water turning to blood, so it was unusable. 
in, in the plagues there, and they had this great darkness there as well. So there's some parallels with what God did uh, in getting uh, against Egypt in getting the land of Israel, getting the Israelites out of the land of Egypt. This is where you have what's called uh, Armageddon, where you have the armies. The river Euphrates dries up so that the armies from the east can cross over. Whether this happens literally and figuratively, literally in the Holy Land, or not, nobody knows. Matter of fact, Armageddon doesn't appear in Scripture. The thinking is that it stands for Har Megiddon, which would be the mountain of Megiddo, which is in Israel. And for 11 miles one direction and a number of miles the other direction, at the foot of Mount Megiddo, there's this great plain. And the suspicion is that that great plain, this great plateau, uh, flat area, is where these armies come together and this final battle takes place. And then the seventh pronouncement from heaven, it is done. Now, even during these seven bowls, three times, the Bible specifically says, people curse God because of these plagues and didn't turn to him. Again, I would suggest those are there not because it was inevitable, but because it's pointing out that people are not turning to God, which suggests if there was turning to God, something significant would happen with that. You see, we think of God's wrath, and um, I maintain God is committed to this rescue effort. We've seen multiple times these angels that flew over and multiple times the two witnesses and then times when the Bible focuses in on people's reaction. Uh, I think God's opening and providing a door for people here. So we see even within the wrath of God, it's very designed and we often, people wonder, well, God is love. How could we have wrath? How could we have, that's not the God I believe in. I believe in a God of love. I do too. But the very design of this wrath, the very design of his dealing with Satan, his dealing with sin and the corruption that's here, has within it this open door, the expression of his love to people. Uh, after the bowls, things really ramp up, and we hit kind of the climax of the book of Revelation in the next two chapters. The very next chapter, uh, what's called Babylon is pictured, both sort of the religious system and the system of commerce. It would seem as though the Antichrist kingdom is a worldwide kingdom, the way it's talked about elsewhere. So how to interpret Babylon, I don't know. But the point is, both of those systems are crushed. They collapse. They're done away with. His kingdom falls apart. And he collects armies to march against God. And in chapter 19, just the peak of this climax, it begins with the announcement of the marriage supper of the Lamb. When his bride... Uh, those who are redeemed are pre presented to him and, and the great supper there. 
Chapter 19 goes on with his appearance on the scene in response to these armies as the, the, the rider on a white horse and on his thigh was king of kings and lord of lords was emblazoned. And he defeats the armies and things move on. Wish we could linger on that, but we can't. Chapter 20 is an odd chapter in my book because the beast and the false prophet are thrown into the lake of fire Satan is bound with chains and thrown into the abyss for a thousand years. And apparently, although very little is said about it, uh, apparently, during Christ's rule of a thousand years, it's a physical rule, but it's Satan-free. And then after a thousand years, Satan is released, and he does the same thing, deceives the nations. They all march against people's God, uh, against God's people, and, and God comes and destroys them. So it's, an, it's just a very short bit. Is that really the chronological fit of those things? It would seem to be, but uh, who knows? That's, that's so intriguing and has so little detail connected to it. Chapter 21, new heaven and new earth. Chapter 22, this description of the new Jerusalem. And chapter 22, the last book of Revelation, ends with this description of the river of life and the trees growing beside it. And God says, and you know, it's in the context of talking about that, but he states it like an axiomatic statement, like a truth that spans all time. And he says, he provides the offer to come get life. And all who come, anyone who wishes it, can come and get life. I don't think there's, um, that's accidental. That's there. You have God providing the tree of life in the Garden of Eden, which was not restricted. It was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So you have God who creates, provides life, and the story of the Bible is that fall and God and his rescue effort, and finally we get here with the new heaven and new earth, and there's life, and it's come, take freely. So that's a quick overview of the book of Revelation. The last two chapters, no, two pages in your handout, is the start of a few of the ideas and concepts in Revelation that um, that you find some resonance in some other prophecies in the Bible. It's just a start. I wish I could have done more. There's many other subjects you could look at, the Antichrist. Um, there were several, but they, there's there's uh, a half a dozen to a dozen things you could look at, at the way prophecies kind of touch the book of Revelation and to what extent do they help interpret it or fit into it. You have to have to work that through with study. I have my convictions, but uh, prophecy is such an interesting thing. It's, it's what you need to study and look at for your own. Okay, on to these two questions. I think I have these here. Yes. John, John writes in the book, uh, uh, John writes in Revelation that these things are going to happen soon. So uh, why has it been so long? Peter echoes that in 2 Peter talking to his readers. Above all, you must understand, in the last days, scoffers will come. They'll say, where is this coming, he promised. 
And Peter gives an answer. I'm just going to let us rest on this answer. He says they deliberately forget that the earth was just completely destroyed with water back in Noah's day. And by the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction. Then he says, you have to understand slowness. God's not slow, as some understand that slowness, but he's patient. He's patient. Wanting folks to come to him. You know, we saw the number of times God gave direct offers, number of times in Revelation where there, looked, there was opportunity opened up. Uh, in Ezekiel, God sort of adds to that. Do I take pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the sovereign Lord? Rather, am I not pleased when they turn from their ways and live? God doesn't have a grudge and isn't out to, um, to get back. We don't understand love. It underlays everything that goes on in the Bible. It's unconditional love. We don't know much about that kind of love. Uh, writer Kate Sampiri wrote, Before becoming a mother, I had a hundred theories on how to bring up children. Now I have seven children and only one theory. Love them, especially when they least deserve to be loved. I was watching an old episode of uh, Intervention. We have these people, alcoholic or something in the family. It's a reality show, and the family gets together and sort of helps them. Well, they sort of chronicle at the beginning the challenges and difficulties of having a person who is addicted. In this one show, uh, they, they focus on the sister, and she says, if she was normal... I would love her unconditionally. <laughs> if she was normal, I'd love her unconditionally. See, we don't understand unconditional love. It has no conditions. And that's God's love for us. All right, answer. Okay, so the answer to the first one, the Lord is patient in keeping his promise. So I've substituted the word patient for slow. He's patient keeping his promise. Why is he patient? Because of his love. And then the second question. Why did God... Did everybody get that one written down? I shouldn't have gone so fast. But the second question, let me read it to you. What's left... Um, no, that's not it. Why did God give us these prophecies if we can't have the full picture? Why do we get prophecies where we kind of know, you know, we can put it together, but it's likely it's going to happen some different way. Does that even make sense to do? And the answer is, we're told the end of the story so we can have security, peace, and hope. You know, when God says, come to me, those that labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest, we're not sort of picking and he's not asking us to pick and say, well, I think, I think God's stronger than the other side. I'm not sure. No, he's telling us the end of the story. Here's how it works out. Come so you can have life. Because that's, that's, mine is the only path for life. 
You know, the end is known. World War II was a, a, was a massive war involving a number of nations. Uh, Hitler was conquering country after country in Europe and appeared unstoppable. Uh, the, the sort of turning point of that war came with D-Day when the Allies, the British, the Americans, other Allies, crossed the channel and landed uh, in France. And it was a horrific day because, of course, strategically, the Army wants to establish a beachhead. And with the might of the United States in, uh, in the fight, uh, establishing a beachhead was very significant. Well, after a number of days, there was that beachhead. And from that point on, the end of the war really was never in doubt. Uh, it was over for Hitler. And the Allies marched, and within uh, a number of months, British forces, American forces, Russian forces were on the outside of Berlin uh, waiting to come in and finish it. The war was really over when that, that D-Day crossing happened, but the soldiers still carried on, and as they carried on, they could carry on knowing that things were going to end with this. Same thing here with Revelation. You know, we talked about it last time. We talked some about peace. And Paul writes that the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. Perhaps most importantly is the hope. We see God sealing the 144,000 from every nation and protecting them. And we know we won't get overlooked. God keeps all of his own. I'm his and part of the plan. So today doesn't have to be a great day. Because today isn't really what ultimately matters for us. We're longing for a better place. Hebrews calls it a better country. There's a glory coming. Paul says to live is Christ and to die is gain. I think I have... No. Uh, Paul writes, therefore, uh, he talks about all the troubles that we have. He says, though outwardly we're wasting away, yet inwardly we're being renewed day by day for our light and momentary troubles. And he was talking about being stoned nearly to death, being in a shipwreck and all that. Those are the light momentary troubles. Are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary. But what is, what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. And that perspective is critical. I think that's what revelation, that's ultimately what prophecy gives us, is the kind of big picture perspective that puts everything else in place for us. And we can be secure as believers, knowing that we're safe and secure, and we have hope. So we know what we're living for. We know who it is that has our lives in our hands. You know, Julie and I, as, as some of you have, spent many, many hours sitting in school gymnasiums watching school productions, you know, with their painted scenery and, and, and all that. But as I sit there in my folding chair on the floor of the gym, I can see the lines for the gym. I can see the basketball court outlined. If I glance up a little bit, I can see the, the baskets that have all been cranked up high. So even though I'm, 
They want me to be drawn into this story that's happening on stage for the next hour and a half, two hours. I really know I'm sitting and I know there's a reality. I'm still in reality. This is really a gym. This is just a play that's going on. And in the same way, Paul says we should focus our eyes on things unseen because the things unseen are eternal. This, what we see, is temporary. It's a play. It has props, costumes. Thank you for listening to New Hope Chapel's podcast. Located in Arnold, Maryland, New Hope Chapel is a small expression of the much larger body of Christ that spans across the world. We're a group of believers helping each other on our lifelong journeys to become like Jesus. While we have a variety of distinctives that make us a unique church, our main desire is to be God's church, to love Him, follow Him, to learn from Him, to let Him lead us and change our lives. We are His disciples, and He is our rabbi. Join us in the story that God is writing called New Hope Chapel. To learn more about our church, visit us at newhopechapel.org or check us out on Facebook slash newhopechapelmd. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and iTunes. Music kindly provided by the least of these. Thanks again for listening and God bless.